Once again, standard gateway welcome for Bill Vanderbush. That was, that was so random. Like, I feel like that's got your pastor's fingerprints all over it. It's awesome. I'm going to have the Mario theme going through my head now. Oh, so glad to get to know you guys. It's just an honor to be here. And um, my name is Bill. I have a, uh, let me just give you a quick synopsis. My wife, Tracy, and I met when we were five years old. She, uh, she's uh, my next door neighbor back in Austin, Texas. We got married a short time after that because it was Texas. <laughs> Southern joke. Uh, actually, we were very young. We were so young when we got married when the minister said, you may kiss the bride. I was like, Gross. It's not true. Uh, so we've been married for 27 years this year, and we've got two kids. I got a 24-year-old son and a 21-year-old daughter, and they both work at Disney World, which we always say is sort of a halfway answer to prayer because we pray, God, let our kids be servants in the kingdom. <laughs> but we just weren't real specific on which kingdom that was, so... When you pray for your kids, be specific, because God's got a funny sense of humor that way. Uh, my son is, um, kind of a funny story, my son is a, uh, uh, works at the, uh, at the Haunted Mansion. That's his ride, right? So he does. And so he dresses up like a butler every day to go to work. And I always thought, I never wanted to be like super like wealthy or anything, but somebody asked me one time, if you were like ultra wealthy, what would you do? Like just frivolous nonsense, you know? I understand you give to missions and you'd save the world and all this. What would you do? Frivolous nonsensical thing. I said, I always thought it'd be kind of cool to have a butler. So I just sort of threw that out there. And the other day I come downstairs and my son's getting ready to go to work and he's making coffee in my kitchen and he's got his tails on, his tucks, his bow tie and everything. And he turns around and he's like, dad, would you like some coffee? And I thought, that's it. I've got a butler. It's awesome. Not exactly what I had in mind, but it'll do. So, so that's, that's my family, and I pastor, um, actually pastor at the world's only Disney church. It's true. Pastor at Community Presbyterian Church in Celebration, Florida. Celebration is a town that Disney built uh, 22 years ago. It was Walt's idea, and he had it before he died, and it just never got around to being built until 22 years ago. And on the drawings that Walt created, there was a spiritual center right in the middle of town. It was supposed to be a Presbyterian church because Walt's nephew was a Presbyterian minister. So he didn't care whether it was Presbyterian or what it was. Um, But uh, he said, we're going to make a Presbyterian church right in the middle of this community. And so uh, they built a Presbyterian, Disney built a Presbyterian church right in the middle of this community. And uh, a couple of years ago, we moved into the town with no intention of pastoring a church. One thing led to another, and God opened a door, and now uh, I'm pastoring at the Disney church. Very weird, weird environment for me, because I'm not a Presbyterian. So uh, they're very kind and gracious to allow us to be there. But God's uh, been doing an incredible work there, and there's move of Holy Spirit that's happening, and they don't restrict anything that I say. So I get up and I get to preach. And, and uh, I, on Sunday mornings, though, because we have three services, so I, I get 20, 24 minutes of message. That's it. 24 minutes. So I'm so glad to be with you, because as I understand it, I've got like three hours. So I'm kidding. Totally kidding. We'll be a little bit Presbyterian this morning. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But, uh, you know, years ago, we had a guy named Bobby Connor that came to our church in Austin, Texas, and Bobby said that there's a mighty move of God that's happening across denominational lines, and traditional denominations aren't going to be left out. And he drew my attention to Finney, of course, up in New York, upstate New York, and who was Presbyterian, who um, had an incredible impact in his day. And so I've, I've had these guys on my radar for a while. And, uh, and so God's opened up this amazing door, and so here I am, and it's fun. But they let me travel every now and then, so I get a couple of weekends a month that I get to go out and meet new people and make new friends, and so here, here we are today. I'm so um, just encouraged by finding a community of hungry believers that's creating genuine family, and that's the deal. Is it's really about being family today. <sighs> got your Bibles, go to John. 
John chapter 15. John 15 and 16 is where we're going to live today. And um, John chapter 14 and verse 20, I think, is the most mind-blowing scripture of the entire Bible, by the way. Oh, let me say this before, uh, before I go too far here with this. Um, I do have some resources in the back. There's a book about my dad, who's the most spiritual, uh, super, supernaturally wacky character that I ever met in my life. He passed away about five years ago. But he was just a life, he was a walking uh, portal of miracles. The guy was just, I mean, I grew up in a household where I saw so many things happen. And rather than try to replicate them in my own life, I began to realize my dad's relationship with God was his relationship. I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and, and he was telling me about how God speaks to him. And it was so offensive because the way that God speaks to him is like he would ask my friend to do things that he would never ask me to do. I realized that. And as I was listening to my friend Charlie tell a testimony, I said, God, you don't talk to me like that. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and say, and aren't you glad? And I thought, yeah, I am kind of. And I felt like God said, I talk to Charlie the way I talk to Charlie. And I talk to you the way I talk to you. And his relationship is his relationship and yours is yours. And I know your language. I know how to speak to you. And I'll ask Charlie to do things I'd never ask you to do. And I'll ask you to do things I'd never ask Charlie to do. So... I say that because if you happen to read my dad's, uh, my dad's book, the book that was written about his life, you may get inspired to do really, really crazy things, but understand that the crazy things my dad did came from a genuine understanding and knowledge of the voice of God, and uh, a lifetime of just soaking in that voice and having a relationship with God that was very unique to him. So there's a book out there about my dad. He was, he was wild. Man, he was a wild man. Um, there's a book out there called Vignette. It's um, Tracy and, and I, over the course of 20 years, produced journals on love, and it was just personal observations about uh, love and marriage and covenant and union and unity and all that stuff, and so we pulled some of our favorite journal entries out, and we put it in this book. Um, give you a tidbit. There's four people, actually, that you marry when you get married. This is for somebody in here. Uh, the four people you marry are this, the person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they really are right now, and the person they are becoming. And problems in a marriage arise when you only fall in love with the person you think they are. And when the other three show up, you feel like, I got fooled. And even as a Christian, you can feel like, I was lied to, I was fooled, I was sold a bill of goods, and you can actually justify breaking the covenant if you feel like you got married under false pretenses because you don't realize you actually marry four people. The person you think they are is the person you describe to your friends when nobody else is around. It's the person you first fell in love with. They exist in your head. The person they think they are is never as good as the person you think they are. They're always putting themselves down. Girls are really bad about this. You put yourself down and you try to convince your husband that you are not as good as he thinks you are. But God help him if he ever agree with you. And the problem with a, with a relationship like that is now the entire relationship, the success of it is based upon disagreement. That's not sustainable. So you got to let go of who you think they are and you got to let it go of who they think they are. And then the third person is the person that they are right now. Now my wife has this beautiful phrase that goes like this. Every person's life is a book and don't judge their story by the chapter you walked in on but recognize that your involvement in their life is meant to be a living invitation to help them write a glorious conclusion. And that's how that works. And the fourth person is actually the person that matters the most. All of the rest of them are inconsequential. The person that matters the most is the person that they are becoming. God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. Right? The person they are becoming is the person that God has known from before the foundation of the world. And you'll stick with this thing and walk this thing out and keep God in the center of the equation. You'll begin to realize that you are actually a part of that process of them being conformed into the image of Christ. That's who you are in their life. And so that's the four people you marry. And when you figure that one out, you find that you, know, you can actually fall in love with the same person more than once in a lifetime. That's a fine art. And that's pretty cool. You guys married? I hope so. That would be a terrible guess if you weren't. You make a good couple too, so that would have been prophetic. And then there's some USB thumb drives out there. There's a 24-hour teaching, 24 hours of teaching on identity that's out there. And then there's also this one, which is 12 hours of uh, walking in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can have that one too. So, all right, John chapter 15. 
is set up by John chapter 14 and verse 20. Somebody years ago asked me, Bill, what is the most mind-blowing scripture that you've ever read in the Bible? And I settled on John 14, 20. Jesus says this, in that day, and the day he's talking about is when he's defeated death and the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. That's the day. So that day has happened, which means what he's about to say is available and accessible for every person in here. It says, in that day you will know I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, when my friend asked me, what do you think is the most mind-blowing verse in the Bible? It took me six months to answer the question, and I grew up just soaking in the scriptures, soaking the word of God. As a matter of fact, I've got a brand new Bible because I've worn my old traveling Bible out and it's like I feel like a new Christian because it's like the pages still have gold on them you know that kind of thing it's like wow still smells like you know a new Bible that got that new Bible smell so I'm I'm, I don't have any notes or anything in this it's totally new it's like it feels really good I, I grew up just soaking in this I mean living in this my dad played scripture memory tapes 24 7 in our house that's the way I grew up And so I got it like stuck in me. I learned so much of it without even trying. It just kind of got into my system and I just, it's there embedded forever. And so I've, this has been like life to me for so, so long. Um, But when he asked me, what's the most mind blowing verse in the Bible? I really had to go through and like find those that I cannot get over. In other words, I can't just claim to understand it cancel it out and shove it off to the side. And when I hit John 14, 20, every time I think about it, every time I quote it, every time I read it, it just melts my brain. Where Jesus is looking at these disciples, they don't even know who he is. I mean, they've made some pretty audacious claims about the Christ, the son of God, and they've seen him do miracles, but they still, in a sense, are unbelievers. And he looks at these unbelievers and says, in that day you will know I am in the Father, I am the Father one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in the Father, and you are in me. Brought into, included in him. But then, here's the crazy part. You don't just disappear in that equation. He says, and I am in you. Which means he actually cares about your existence. It's not just about you just showing up and then just just accepting Christ and dying. I mean, if the whole point of this life is to get saved so that you go to heaven when you die, we'd only need a two-person evangelistic team, and that would be an evangelist and an assassin, and that would be it. Think about that one for a while. Here's the thing. You and I have been given this incredible life to put the glory and the goodness of God on display. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul said, is the mystery of the gospel, and that is that he actually wants to put himself on display in you. It's what it means to have Christ living in us, and that is that partnering with him, you actually become a living expression of the kingdom of God here on earth, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. So the idea of Christ living in you, how amazing is that? Now, God has a methodology for communicating, and he does through his word, through sound. It's fascinating, but it's not sound the way that we know it. For example, for a voice to be heard, it has to travel through an atmosphere from your mouth to my ear, or my mouth to your ear in this case. But you understand that God created atmospheres by speaking before there was one. In other words, if we're out in space and I try to talk to you, you can't hear a word that I say, but God spoke this atmosphere into existence, meaning that the voice of God transcends everything we know of as just auditory sound. It's the very creative element of who he is, the creative force of who he is, is the word of God. So when Jesus, the word made flesh dwelling among us, starts speaking, Amazing things happen. And a lot of what he says doesn't make any sense. But it's okay. Like, he's standing in front of a mega church, and the disciples must have been really excited because they've got 5,000 plus people there. And before they even get around to taking up the offering, Jesus goes and says something so crazy, it kills the whole meeting. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part of me. He was speaking in metaphor. 
I'm sure he'll explain it in a second. And then he doubles down on it. For my flesh is food and my blood is drink. Boom, done. That's it. Everybody gets up and leaves. How offended do you have to be to get up in the middle of a church service? Listen, even even if I don't agree with what the guy's saying up front, I'll stick around and watch because I'm an American. I like reality television. I, I love to go watch a good train wreck. Come on. It's like, how offended do these guys have to be in order to say, that's it, we're out. And the entire meeting goes dead. And the disciples are standing there left alone with Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and goes, are you going to leave me also? And Peter goes, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You've got words of life. What is Peter just saying? He's saying, I have no idea why you just did what you did. I don't understand a thing about what you just said. But this much I do know, and that is that every time you open your mouth and sound comes out, I come alive inside. And I'm sticking with that. That's the thing about the power of the word of God, the spoken, the declared word, the presence of the living God, the word made flesh dwelling among us. So he gets to the end of his ministry and now it's coming up in John 15 and 16 and Jesus is going to tell us why he's talking. He's actually going to give three reasons why he's talking. And John 15 and 16, he says this phrase three times, these things I've spoken unto you so that. So again, the most powerful force in the universe is the word of God. And now he's going to tell the disciples why he's opening his mouth to speak and what happens every time he does. And the first one is in John chapter 15, down around verse 11. It says this, these things I've spoken unto you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be what? Might be what? Full or complete. Now think about that. Why is he speaking? Because he's giving us a transfusion of joy. Not just any joy, his joy. In other words, I'm talking, and if you knew why I was talking, and if you understood what I was saying, there would be in this moment an impartation of heaven's joy that would just saturate every part of you. Now the thing is, and I mentioned this last night, and that is that you and I get to respond to the presence of God however we want to. You get to choose how you respond to the presence of God. That's another example. I gave one last night, but another example is John himself is in Revelation 5 is standing in the throne room of God. And he's watching this whole scenario play out. God is on the throne and he's holding the scroll and he's looking around for somebody worthy to open it. The lion and the lamb's about to show up, but he hasn't shown up yet. And he says, who's worthy to open it? It says there was none found worthy to open the scroll. John is so confused by what he's seeing that the Bible says John actually starts weeping. And there's an angel standing next to John that nudges him and goes, hey, stop it. That's my paraphrase, but that's essentially what happens. Think about that. John is in the throne room of God, and he doesn't understand what's going on, and he chooses a wrong emotional response because he doesn't understand. Just because you're in the presence of God doesn't automatically mean you're going to go into autopilot and do everything right. Sometimes we get this response to the presence of God that actually needs correction. Because you get to choose how you respond to the presence of God. So he's saying, I'm putting my joy in you. But then over in John chapter 16, he says to the disciples, and while I'm speaking, sorrow has entered your heart. And the reason is, is because they had an expectation of what he was supposed to do. And he's not going to fulfill their expectations. And because of that, everything he says goes contrary to what they expect to happen. And they get sad about it. They can't see beyond the filter of their own expectations. Might I say, if you have any expectations of God, he'll shatter them, he'll destroy them, he'll blow them up. Live with expectancy, which means I know the goodness is going to show up, I just don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like when it shows up, but when it shows up, it's going to be amazing. First thing he says I'm speaking to you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. The second thing he says is in John chapter 16 and verse 1. These things I've spoken to you so that you might be kept from stumbling. Okay, now this is an interesting part because we think, okay, that means that if he's 
talking. I just can come up with the rules that he's saying. If I can come up with the, the, the list of all the things to do, then I will be kept from stumbling. So we come up with these lists of every command that Jesus ever gave. And if we can just do all these things, that's how we'll keep ourselves pure. Well, the problem with that is we have to tie John chapter 15, verse 3 into it. In John 15, 3, he says, Now you are clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. You see it there? John 15, 3. He's just walked the disciples through the Kidron Valley. He's taken a, just kind of taken a stroll, and they're going along. Let's say that Tim and I are, are part of the 12. We're part of the disciples, and we're kind of bringing up the rear. So we're catching about every other word. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks over his shoulder, and he says, now you're clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. I might look at Tim and go, hey, I think I missed something here. I, I think we missed an action point. He, I, I, why? What? He just said we got clean. How, how did that happen? I don't know. Did you do something? No, I didn't do anything. Did you do anything? No, I didn't do anything. Excuse me, Jesus, um, back to what you just said a second ago. How did that work? We missed something. I think we didn't catch what we were supposed to do. Oh, no, guys. Listen, I'm talking. You're here. Now you're clean. Wait, 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 wait a minute. What did we, we didn't do anything? No, no. See, you're present. I'm talking. And because I'm speaking and you're here, now you're clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. So that's the power of the word is that you and I have received, because of his finished work on the cross, his righteousness into us. It is who we are. It's his declared, uh, 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 it's his declared identity over your existence. He's saying, you're clean. Why? Because I'm talking, and that's the power of my word. See, God in Christ has reconciled us to himself, and the way he did it is he refuses to allow your transgressions to be put into your account, 2 Corinthians 5. He refuses to let your sin be put into your bank account. Everybody else will put that sin in your bank account, and they'll hold the consequences against you. But here's the thing about God, is that he's not looking for people who aren't transgressing. He just takes and refuses to allow sin to have the power to dictate to him whether he can love you or not. That's the beauty of this grace of God. And when you realize how forgiven you actually are, then righteousness becomes a byproduct or an overflow of that surrendered life to the grace of God. It's a beautiful existence. That's why the power of this grace is so amazing. So he says, these things I've spoken to you so that you might be kept from stumbling. See, the Bible says, now to him who's able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless and blameless. In other words, he's taking a personal interest in you staying holy and pure and righteous. And you know the way he does it? He refuses to allow your sins to be put into your account. And when you start to realize that, then, then your love for God doesn't come out of a, a fear of being rejected by him, but your love and your life lived for God comes from a revelation of how accepted you are by him. That's where you're moved, moved and motivated, compelled by love. <clears throat> the third thing is in the last part of John chapter 16. It's in John 16, 33. It says, these things I've spoken unto you so that in me you may have peace. It'd be nice if he just stopped right there. I just wish he'd have just stopped there. But he doesn't. He says, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Trouble. Tribulation. Trials. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Okay, now, think about this. God invented time, which means he can do whatever he wants with it. Now, this verse logically makes no sense, which is what makes it so much fun. Look, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, in the world of time and in the world of form, we have three time tenses, past, present, and future. So, quick question. In this world, you will have trouble. What is will have, past, present, or future? Future. In this world, there's trouble coming in your future. However, be of good cheer. In other words, take heart. I have, what tense is that? Past, overcome the world. 
What has Jesus just said? The trouble that is coming in your future is not a surprise to me. As a matter of fact, I've already been to your future and I've already equipped you with everything necessary to step into that future with an overcoming awareness of victory, reconciliation, and redemption. In other words, you never step into a moment of trouble or challenge in your future where you're not equipped to look beyond it to see the hopeful glory of eternity and you grab a hold of the joy of that moment, pull it into the present, and you can face every single challenge head on, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful it is. And let me tell you, I've been through some painful and difficult challenges. But I begin to realize, wait a minute, he's already equipped me with everything necessary to stand in the face of every challenge and every adversity. Why? Because he's already been there. I was talking to somebody about this this morning. Listen, the faithfulness of God is not that he keeps you and I from pain. The faithfulness of God is that he enters our pain with us. He steps into your pain with you. And then he promises to never leave you or forsake you. And he walks you out, takes you by the hand. If you can't see your way, he'll guide you out. If you can't take another step, he'll lift you and carry you out. However it happens, the promise of the faithfulness of God is that when everything is said and done, you will stand with him victorious, reconciled, and all things that have gone wrong made right. See, so he has the power to actually rewrite our history. Let me give you an example of that. The story of Sarah in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, a fascinating one. Sarah heard the word of the Lord and she laughed at it. This is the historical record as we know it. She laughed at it and then she came up with the worst idea in human history. And we see the results of it on the evening news every night. Okay? That was the historical record. But did you know that Sarah actually made it into the hall of fame of faith of Hebrews chapter 11? And in Hebrews 11, it actually tells us that Sarah believed God. Wait a minute. Well, now we have a problem. Either the writer of Hebrews is lying. Well, that can't be the case because that would call into question the entire integrity of scripture. Or maybe, and this is what I think, that God has in Hebrews 11, let us see just a peek behind the veil to see how he sees our history. And maybe God's redemptive purposes in history actually have the ability to reach in your past and take the worst moment of your darkest failure or your deepest pain and completely rewrite it so that in eternity, what he sees is very different from what you remember which means he's going to dismantle every single one of your regrets and every single moment of pain that you have ever, ever experienced to the point where you can stand with him and realize the glorious power of his redemption even has the ability to reverse the effects of my sin or my pain in this moment that I'm living right now. That's the power of reconciliation. Some of you ought to get like seriously happy at that. I know those of you who've done it all right, you have nothing to worry about. But for the rest of us, some of you ought to be like, you, you mean eternity will remember my story very differently? What do you think it means when he says, I will remember their sins no more? Where David said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, you think he's gonna go ahead and attach those back to your story in eternity? Mm, I just feel like I need to hit that a little bit today. Somebody needs that. In this world, you will have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And the word peace that he uses there is the word shalom. It's the most pregnant word in any language. It means complete wholeness, wholeness of mind, wholeness of body, wholeness of spirit, spirit, soul of body, completely walking in this place of wholeness. These things I've spoken unto you to impart my wholeness into you. In this world, you will have trouble. I have overcome. This is how you and I are walking as more than conquerors. Another mysterious verse that doesn't make any sense. In Christ, we're more than conquerors. What does that even mean? Once I've conquered, I've already won. How can I be more than a winner? Simple. Remember back when the Floyd Mayweather fight happened. Anybody watch that? 
I was in Ireland, so I had to get up in the middle of the night and watch this thing on pay-per-view, like, because a friend of mine was, like, FaceTiming the screen of his pay-per-view, and he was, like, letting me watch it on. So I'm, I'm sitting there on my phone watching the Floyd Mayweather fight. Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor fight, and Floyd wins in 12 rounds, and for winning, he got $300 million. $300 million. Conor got $100 million for losing. Hey, I'd take a punch for 100 million bucks. One punch down, but I may not be able to eat solid food for six months, may not remember my name. 100 million dollars for losing a fight. Are you kidding? How crazy is that, right? So let's say you're Floyd Mayweather. You get into the ring and you box for 12 rounds. Now you're bloody, you're beaten. It's going to take you weeks to recover from this thing. But you get done and they hoist your hand in victory. You have just won. $300 million, you are a conqueror. Then Floyd's wife steps into the ring and he hands her the check. (laughs) Floyd may be a conqueror, but she is more than a conqueror. (laughs) Because she reaps the full benefits of a fight she never had to fight. She didn't swing a punch, she didn't break a nail, she didn't bust a heel, her hair's not messed up, and she reaps the full benefits where she didn't even have to to swing a punch. Come on. It doesn't make any sense. So you say, how can I be more than a conqueror? It means that you get the fullness of the inheritance of what Christ paid for on the cross that enables and empowers you and I to live a resurrected existence so that everything of his inheritance becomes yours. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, which means you get to reap the full benefits of a fight you didn't even have to fight. You don't have to feel the nails, the sting of the whip, the crown of thorns, any of that. And everything that he paid for on the cross gets deposited into your account. That's the finished work of the cross. Now, you ready for this? The Bible says, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, the definition of the kingdom of God, according to the apostle Paul, is this, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of form or eating or drinking or anything that originates in this world. The kingdom of God is this, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, in the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just, in John 15 and 16, given us three reasons why he's talking. In John chapter 16, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you so that you might be kept from stumbling, but he gave us his righteousness because of his declaration over our lives, because of the shed blood and the forgiveness of sins coming from the power of the resurrection. That's the beauty of the righteousness of God. So, first thing, first reason why he's speaking He's giving you righteousness. The last one we talked about in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken, so in me you may have peace. And John 15, 11, these things I've spoken unto you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. What is Jesus doing every time he's talking? He's releasing the kingdom of God. He's advancing the kingdom of God by speaking with the purpose of intentionally, purposefully releasing over you righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, 1 John 4, 17 says, as he is, so are we in this world. So if we become conscious and aware and purposeful and intentional about in our words releasing the tangibility of the righteousness and peace and joy of heaven in our speech, then we, on our watch with him in us, will advance the kingdom of God in the earth to every person we come in contact with. So when people come in contact with you, they'll be like, Every time you open your mouth, I feel like I'm coming alive inside. Why is that, Tim, that every time you open your mouth, I feel like something is coming alive and I don't understand it? Because you're purposefully releasing righteousness, peace, and joy in every exchange that you have. And this is how we advance the kingdom of God. For as he is, so are we in this world. The next verse beyond Romans 14, 17, Romans 14, 18 is the one that people don't typically read. And that's where Paul says this, for he who serves Christ in this way is approved by God and acceptable by men, or approved by men, acceptable to God and approved by men. It's often been like a hallmark, a badge of honor 
for us to become as offensive as, a, as possible in the world today. And then we take the abuse that we get from the world and we figure, man, Jesus said we're going to be hated. And so here I am. I'm fulfilling the call of God on my life, a ministry of being hated. Well, listen, we don't get into this thing to be liked, but we do get in this to advance the kingdom of God. And Paul says, if you release righteousness and peace and joy, fueled by that connection with the Holy Spirit, you'll understand the approval of Christ upon your life, and you'll also have acceptance by people around you. Why? Because it's not you're looking to be accepted or you're looking to be liked, but the one who's called the desire of the nations is in you and through you when you begin to speak out righteousness, peace, and joy and release the kingdom, that one who is the desire of the nations will cause himself to be attractive in you to cause people to turn and wonder, maybe this person knows who I really am. See, that's the big question everybody's asking. Who am I? What am I even doing here? What's the point of life? And if the church can't answer that question about ourselves, how can we possibly expect anybody to come to us asking, what is the answer to this question? We're still confused about who we are. But you get into this, this revelation that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. It doesn't cause you to be proud. As I said in the Q&A this morning we did, you can't be proud over something you didn't do. You can't take credit for something you didn't do. But it's because of what Christ has done that we rest in this righteous existence, this holy identity, this royal identity where you begin to walk throughout life and you begin to look and see Jesus in people before they even see him in themselves. Paul said in Colossians, he says, look guys, there's no male or female, or Galatians, he says, there's no male or female, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. In Colossians, he says, there's no, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free man, and then he says, there's not even any barbarians or Scythians. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but if you understand, those two groups were the most hated, vilified people groups in Paul's day. The most violent people groups. They are the Al-Qaeda and ISIS of Paul's day. And Paul, a Pharisee, redeemed by the blood of Christ, arrested by the Spirit of God, comes to this revelation. He looks around and he goes, there's not even any barbarians or Scythians. People go, well, of course there are. See, there's that whole nation there and there's that. Oh, no, no, no. He says, you don't understand. Christ is all and in all. He holds all things together by the power of his word and the word of his power. All things are created by him, for him, in him. All things consist and he holds all things together. What is Paul saying? Is he saying that that is absolutely the way it is? He's saying it doesn't matter what other people think or what they see. Their blindness doesn't dictate the greater reality. And that is ultimately when it's all said and done. When I see who he really is, I see he's permeating everything. And he's holding everything together. And I can't look around without seeing Jesus everywhere. In other words, I'm looking past the labels. I'm looking past the lies. I'm looking past the costumes that we build and create for ourselves. See, in Christ transcends your nationality. It transcends your gender. It transcends your social status. It transcends every lie that you've ever believed about yourself. Pretty soon, a guy like Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, chief of sinners, starts looking around, and everywhere he looks, all he can see is Jesus. Pretty soon, he doesn't even see people's nationalities anymore. He just sees Jesus. He doesn't even see people's gender anymore. He sees Jesus. What is he doing? He's so fixated on Christ. And this is, I think, the biggest challenge of the church today. For in the last 2,000 years, we've spent a ton of time making God famous for judgment. When in fact, he's meant to be famous for love. And this will start emerging in the body of Christ when people outside of the church will look into the church and rather than see a dysfunctional family and back away, they'll look in and they'll see how we love one another. And they'll go, I want to be loved like that. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. We start to put that on display by determining to see people, Christ in us, the hope of glory, looking beyond the lies and the labels and saying, no, you're, you're a child of God. You're a daughter of God. In Christ is who you are. We had a kid come in, in our church one time and he says, Bill, he says, a friend introduced him to me. He says, this is the guy I was telling you about. I knew the guy was an atheist. So I said to him, so, so wow, you, you, what brings you out here today? He says, oh, I don't know, my friend has told me to come to your church and everything. 
I said, so church really isn't your thing? He says, no, quite the opposite. I'm an atheist. I know what an atheist means, but I, I like to ask questions anyway. I said, what does that mean? He goes, you know what an atheist is? I said, I don't want to hear you say it. What is an atheist? He says, means I don't believe in God. I said, it's all right, God believes in you. And he just kind of looks, said, enjoy the service, thanks for coming. I just turned around and walked away. So I get up and I preach. I get done and I open up the altars at the end. If you want to just begin a relationship with Christ, begin to start building them on the foundation, the fact that Christ is redeemed, called you by name, says you're his child. I want to come to Christ this morning and say, I need a relationship with you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I said, I want to pray with you personally, so I invite you to come down to the front. This guy's the first person to get up and walk down to the front. And I said to him, I said, so let me ask you a question. What was said this morning that, that, that caught you today? And I thought it would be something about the masterpiece of a message that I had just preached. And he goes, I honestly, I didn't hear anything you said this morning. He goes, it's what you said before the service started. You said, God believes in me. He says, nobody has ever said they believe in me. And he said, suddenly, while I was standing there, I thought to myself, God, I want you to be real. If you believe in me, I want you to be real because nobody believes in me. And uh, he says, so I've been feeling something this whole time. He said, honestly, I don't I hear a word you said, but I've been feeling something. So I said, wow, that's amazing. You just came to an awareness of that just because we had a 10-second conversation and you missed my entire message? And he ended up beginning a relationship with God that day. See, the, 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 the beauty of the gospel has nothing to do with what you and I do. Your yes matters. Your response matters. Your decision matters. Why? Because it's you surrendering what you thought to agree with what he thinks. It's you coming into alignment with his heart and his purposes. And in that place, you begin to be aware that you're a child of God, a son, a daughter. And sons and daughters are very different from orphans. Orphans are a certain mentality. Orphans, when they get together, they compete. But sons and daughters, when they get together, they're complete. Orphans tolerate one another, but sons and daughters celebrate one another. And God's bringing us out of that orphan mentality into a place of sonship. But there's a difference between orphans and runaways. They're both in the same exact boat. They're in the same exact situation, but they got there two different ways. Orphans may have been in a situation where they had no choice. They're rejected or outcast or they lost parents that no longer live anymore. They have no connection to home anymore. And now they're orphaned. Runaways left, made a decision to make a separation. There's a distance now, and, and they're both in the same exact boat. But one is the fault of one, and one is not the fault of, but they're both in the same boat. It's interesting, because when Jesus shows up in Luke 4.18, I'll finish with this. He begins his earthly ministry by saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord's upon me. He has anointed me to preach and proclaim freedom and liberty, and he mentions two groups of people, captives and prisoners. It's interesting because captives are in bondage or in chains, but it wasn't their fault. They were taken. It was the choice of somebody else. Somebody else violated them. Somebody else abused them. Somebody else made the decision to bring pain into their life, and now they're in bondage to unforgiveness and bitterness and rage and anger, and they can't seem to get rid of it. What happened? It wasn't your fault, but you're a captive. I suffered a loss. I didn't ask for this. I, I, I don't know why this happened, but I'm now in bondage, right? I'm stuck with this grief, this sadness, this anger, all of these things that keep me from feeling loved by a good father, orphaned as a captive. But then there's another group of people, and it's the prisoners. And prisoners, by and large, for the most part, are suffering the exact same bondage, but it is their fault. In other words, they did something to warrant this situation. I made a choice, and now I'm paying for it. It's interesting because our modern justice, I think our sense of justice and what's fair would say the captives should go free, but the prisoners, they did the crime, they ought to do the time. But Jesus shows up in Luke 4.18 and says, hey, I'm talking to two groups of people, captives and prisoners. And apparently, he doesn't care how you got into the situation, he's just looking at his kids wearing chains and say, mm, that's not right. However they got into it, that's not nearly as important as what I want to do. Because he says, whether you're a captive or a prisoner, I've got one word, freedom. 
However you got into that situation where you're feeling chains or in bondage to, to, to fear and loss and discouragement and death and unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and confusion and all of those things that are not part of his world. However you're, you feel tied to that, he looks at you and says, I don't care if it's your fault. I don't care if it's somebody else's fault. I just want you free. And that's why he's speaking over your life. That's what he wants to do is ignite and awaken in us an awareness that every single one of us, filled with the Holy Spirit, united with God, can step into every single situation and purposefully and intentionally release the kingdom. See, orphan come to church and they'll make a mental note of how many people don't greet them on a Sunday morning. Walk away and determine whether that church is friendly or not on the basis of how they were treated. Because all they're looking is, how do I get treated? But a son or a daughter begins to take ownership of the fact that, wait a minute, I'm going into this house of worship today and I know there's going to be people in this house that are hurting. I know there's people in this house that are captives and prisoners. Maybe it's something that happened this week. Maybe it's something that happened as a child. And whatever happened to them, there's somebody in this house that needs the kingdom of God to be released over them. So God, before I even step into this service, would you ignite within me, just turn the radar on so I can see a person that's hurting and give me prophetic words of spirit and life so that I become a living invitation for them to see the kingdom of God manifest righteousness and peace and joy in their heart. That's a sonship mentality. God's moving us all from a place of orphans to sons because as I said last night, he's building family. He's not just creating a crowd. He's not just creating a congregation. God is building a family. For if he was building something other than family, God would never have called himself father. And that's what we're all invited into, this awareness of family. Can I just say over you that you, you're worthy of this? He thinks you're worthy of this. He thinks you're worth, of, worth this. He absolutely says, you are mine. I've redeemed you, redeemed you, called you by name, and you are mine. Can I make a, I'm going to make a really audacious claim over you. Some of you may believe this and some of you may not, but if you believe this, it would change your life. God's not disappointed in you. You need to hear this right now. God is not disappointed in you. He's never been disappointed in you, as a matter of fact. His ability to be disappointed in you would mean that he's waiting for your behavior to tell him how he can feel about you. And he's made this very clear. Nothing is going to separate you from his love. Nothing. 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 And the beautiful thing about love is the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Disappointment and fear are intrinsically linked to one another. Fear and disappointment go hand in hand. He is perfect love. How then can he come into a partnership with a spirit of fear enough for him to be disappointed in you? See, he's taken upon himself the responsibility to finish a work that he's completing in you. He who began a a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And some of you are still walking out the fullness of the awakening to what has happened in the finished work of the cross that you and I are actually already been made complete. And we're beginning to see the process of how that completion comes to fruition and reality. But the beauty of it is from eternity's perspective, he already sees you as complete. So part of me seeing you is I have the challenge of seeing you as complete too. In other words, I get to look beyond your own blindness of yourself and begin to treat you as though you're already complete because that's how the Father sees you. He's awakening us to that awareness of how complete we are in him and how united we are with each other. And we'll talk more about that one tonight. Take and bow your heads with me for just a moment. It's enough of my words. I just feel like it's time to just get alone with the Lord and just invite the Holy Spirit just awaken you right now to an awareness of how complete you are in him. God, I pray by the power of your spirit right now that the sound of heaven that transcends time and space would resonate in every heart within the sound of my voice. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do what you've done for me so often? And that is convince every person in here, that they're a son and a daughter. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, the Holy Spirit is absolutely the kindest, 
person I have ever met. Daily, he convinces me of my sonship. Daily, he convinces me of my righteousness. Daily, he's arguing me out of every lie and label I've attached to myself to awaken to me who I really am. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would do that for every person in this room. God, by the power of your grace, would you let that righteousness, peace, and joy just begin to wash over every person as we rest in being your children, your sons and daughters. God, and I pray for the children of this house that like Samuel at an early age, they would become so familiar with the sound of your voice, so aware of the sound of your voice. Thank you, God. We're just going to do a quick prophetic act here. Why don't you take and put your hands out in front of you just like this. Just look down into your hands. I want you to see God pouring his righteousness. It's like oil. Pouring his righteousness down into you, into your hands. Pouring his holiness down into your hands. Pouring the treasures of heaven right there. He's putting all of the treasures of heaven, heaven's resources, the righteousness and the peace and the joy, the treasures of the kingdom, all putting it into your hands as if he trusts you with it. On the count of three, I want you to take your hands, I want to put put them over your heart, like you're taking all that righteousness, all that peace and all that joy, the healing and the wholeness of the righteousness, peace and joy of the kingdom of God that we're called to seek above and beyond everything else, first and foremost. On the count of three, I want you to take and just pull your hands close to your chest. One, two, three. Father, right now, by this just prophetic, simple prophetic act, Lord, I pray that we would take ownership of that kingdom, dedicating ourselves to seek first the kingdom above and beyond everything else all the days of our life, that this church and this house would be known for its passionate pursuit and release of the kingdom of God. And Lord, I look at this region and this area, Bridgeville, and this whole area, God, I pray right now that you would give us a divine vision to see this area lit with the fires of revival and reformation that would transform culture, that would pull lives back together, God, that would, that would shut disease and affliction down, God, that would invade every impossibility to release the miracles of heaven into it. God, I pray that this would become a region that's known for reformation and that this house would be an epicenter for a move of your spirit in this community. Thank you, God, for stirring that within us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Pastor Tim. Go ahead and stand. If you are on the prayer team, go ahead and get up here. I'm going to give a benediction, and those who want to come up to the front and receive a little bit more prayer or do a little bit more praying can do that. Uh, if that message tugged on your heart and you're like, yes, I need to, I need to, I need to do a little bit more, um, then definitely come forward for prayer. If you have any sickness in your body, if you have any brokenness in your heart that you would like prayer with, uh, then please do come forward. This is your benediction. May you know the grace that has made you already complete in Christ without you adding one thing to it. Amen. You're dismissed.